Welcome to this 10th and final presentation in our series, Reason and Beauty in Renaissance Christian Thought and Culture. The series has been a follow-up to a previous series on the Middle Ages, and has charted a path through key Renaissance thinkers, poets, artists, humanists, and theologians, and how these have pursued both rational and aesthetic uh, pursuits conjointly. And we've been very pleased, as Michael said, to present this as a collaboration with the American Kuzana Society. You can find our previous presentations and previous series on YouTube. And as Michael said, following up from this, we are excited to highlight a, a short series entitled Eastern Catholic Theology in Action, beginning on Thursdays, uh, Thursday, September 3rd, uh, and after that on Thursdays at 7 p.m. Central. Uh, on September 3rd, Professor Daniel Galadza will be introducing us to liturgical mystagogy. See our website for more details about that. At any point during today's presentation, you can ask a question through the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen, and there will be a moderated Q&A time with our presenter afterward. I would now like to welcome Peter, uh, Professor Peter Casarella. Professor Casarella comes to us today from Duke University, where he's newly arrived and will begin teaching systematic theology, world religions, and the global church. Professor Casarella served as director of Latin America, North America Church Concerns Project while at Notre Dame, and founded the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University. Widely published on a great diversity of, of areas, Professor Casarella has just this year published a collection of essays entitled Reverberations of the Word, Wounded Beauty in Global Catholicism, as well as a second book, The Whole is Greater Than Its Parts, Ecumenism and Interreligious Encounters in the Age of Pope Francis. With this talent for seeing the whole among disparate parts, we're very happy to have Professor Casarella give us the capstone presentation for this Renaissance series. Uh, Professor, may I ask you now to, to turn on your camera and your mic? There we go. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Michael, for these kind introductions. It's a particular pleasure and privilege to be speaking here tonight for this capstone presentation. Um, above all, because it uh, brings together two venerable institutions to whom I've been devoted for a long time, Lumen Christi and the American Cuisine Society. So without further ado, I'd like to speak on the passage to modernity, uh, Renaissance Christianity today, um, and begin with a little story. When I was a graduate student at Yale, I served as a TA in an undergraduate lecture class called The Shape of Modernity. It was a very popular class that attracted students from all disciplines and from many different spiritual paths that included believers, non-believers, and everything in between. One of the co-teachers was the philosopher of religion, Louis Dupre. Most of what I'm going to present this evening pertains to the shape of modernity as seen in the, in the interpretation of the Italian Renaissance by Louis Dupre and by another colleague of his from Yale at that time and teacher of mine, Carson Harries. Both scholars, Dupre and Harries, went far beyond the Renaissance in their studies of the genealogy of modernity. And neither one would claim that there was a single factor that shaped modern consciousness. In this brief presentation this evening, I intend to lay bare both the converging and diverging aspects of their two accounts, and also the limits of the frameworks that these two thinkers explored in common. 
This brings me to the larger question implied in the title given in the lecture. How, if at all, does the thought of the Italian Renaissance shape our thinking today? Is it through direct influence on self-professed humanists in our midst, or are there more subtle currents that enter into the subterranean levels, if you will, of personal consciousness and the formation of social structures? So my hypothesis is that both processes are possible and must necessarily be taken into consideration. One initial point that has to be put on the table is the difference between the social and political reality of today's so-called secular humanism and the currents that I will focus on this evening. And I'll give you a very specific example. Uh, on February 17th of every year, a group of so-called free thinkers assembles at the celebrated statue of Giordano Bruno at the Campo de Fiori to remember the execution of their secular hero. This event reflects shifting dynamics in late 19th century Italy that pitted the Catholic Church against a culture of militant atheism. Bruno and his lamentable fate, dying there uh, on a cross, deserve to have a legitimate place in telling the story of the shape of modernity. I believe that very firmly, in fact. But this anti-clerical reaction against Catholic nationalism is not a strand that I will highlight. In fact, and this is the point I'm trying to make, I will argue that passionately secular humanism is more of a reflection of the dialectics of the last century of our cultural life in its way of retrieving the past than a direct inheritance from the Italian thinkers who will be treated here. There, and this is the point that I think both together and together that uh, Dupre and Harry's help us to see or at least think about. There is a religious humanism that extends from Dante and Petrarch through to the 16th century that undergirds the main story that I will be telling. A second and related point concerns the thesis of Jakob Burckhardt that the Renaissance contributed to modernity by forging a new concept of the individual. This thesis ignores earlier renaissances, going back to the New Testament, the Fathers, the Carolingian revival in the 12th century and the 12th century, earlier renaissances that highlighted the eminent dignity of the human person, as well as the relational and social strand of Italian humanism itself. The modern individual does come into a new profile during the Italian Renaissance, but not necessarily in terms of the greatness of the solitary individual as exalted by Burckhardt, who after all was Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche's pessimistically conservative, but equally hyper-modernist interlocutor in 19th century Basel. So what I'm gonna call Burkhardt's not Erasmian, but Neo-Erasmian Renaissance is another century old relic that needs to be read and then abandoned. I should probably at this point share the screen. So let me just get a little bit of orientation before we get into the details of the two interpretations. An openness to transcendence or to an infinite measure of human daily existence is not only the new discovery of the Renaissance I would like to highlight. Both Dupre and Harry's praise Italian humanists for their new perspective on the reality of perspective itself. Truth is approached perspectively, as we will see when we examine Nicholas Acuza's On the Vision of God. In a similar vein, however, and this becomes the main question that I wanna pose for our group tonight, Frederick Nietzsche in The Gay Science writes, we contemplatives are those who continually fashion something 
that had not been there before. The whole eternally growing world of valuations, colors, accents, perspectives, scales, affirmations, and negations. Whatever has value in our world now does not have value in itself according to its nature. Nature is always a value less. Nature is always value less, but has been given value at some time as a present. And it was we who gave and bestowed it. Only we have created the world that concerns men. End of quote, Gay Science Sphere One. So the point is that humanist perspectivalism, uh, in a sense, might be seen as a precursor to this Nietzschean perspectivalism. But in a word, it's not as radically subjectivist as this Nietzschean cousin. The Italian humanist does not aim to devalue all valuations, the famous umwerten, alle werten that Nietzsche proposed with that double meaning of de and revaluation. The Italian humanist charts a different, less subjectivistic course for modern life. Human creativity and openness to new perspectives are seen as an image of an omniscient, and here we get into the particularly Kuzin aspect, all seen an omniperspectival God who anchors the contingency of life and helps to forge new human horizons of experience that will sustain and in fact nurture communal life. And thinking about this quote unquote vision that emanates from God's infinity, we will also ask about the imposition of European cultural heritage that was taking place in the new world at the same time as the forging of a new openness to cultural perspectivalism. Toward the end of the presentation, I'll raise an important and timely question about the decolonial reading of the religious humanism that emerges from the historical theses advocated by Dupre and Harry's. So I start with Harry's, and in particular his work, which I think lays this all out in more detail than I can go into this evening, Infinity and Perspective. But let me start again with something personal, since that might give us some uh, orientation. Karsten Harris, uh, for those of us who knew him well, was an expert on Cruzanus, but it was also an expert on Heidegger. And he regularly taught graduate seminars, if not on Heidegger, but with very Heideggerian themes. And one thing he brought to my attention that I think is important for this discussion this evening is that Heidegger and his masterwork, Being in Time, uh, gave very little attention to the concept of the infinite. Um, the analysis of the situatedness of Dasein in the world very, left very little room for the openness to the infinite. Temporalizing actualizes our situatedness, our being there, or Dasein, and the category of the infinite plays a positive role only in as much as, for example, in one place, he says that infinite time uh, has to be considered, but only with respect to the temporalizing of a non-finite time out of our own finitude. So Harry brought that to my attention at a time that I was, for good or ill, very steeped in Heideggerian uh, thought and um, kind of opened a door. And in that door comes Nicholas of Cusa. So enter Nicholas of Cusa, a speculative theologian who embeds, who embeds the thought of the infinite into the very process of thinking itself. Cusanus affirms finitude in a manner that could be likened 
to the analysis of Heidegger with his emphasis on learned ignorance and limits um, and does that through the very dialectics of learned ignorance. But Kuzanis considers openness to the infinite and I don't mean just the mathematical infinite to be crucial to understanding the world and the place of a rational being in it. So this book that I've highlighted here, the 2001 work, Infinity and Perspective, um, is an exploration of the theme, is an exploration of this theme through many thinkers, not just Kuzanis. Kuzanis stands at the threshold of the idea of an infinite universe, one that calls into question the Aristotelian finitude of natural locomotion. The Cardinal did not himself advance this postulate as his own, but later thinkers like the celebrated Bruno and also Galileo Galilei exploited the opening of the door to a new world that he had made possible. Infinity of perspective does more than recount the story, one that others, Alexander Coiré and Ernst Cassir, had already thoroughly documented by the mid 20th century. What Harry's does that it's unique is that he plums the question about the meaning of life in the midst of the search for an absolute measure to finite existence. And again, I think it's useful to recall a Heideggerian uh, word, namely the word that uh, Heidegger took uh, from a poem of Hödelin, or a question that Heidegger took from a poem of Hödelin, gibt es ein Maß auf der Erde? Is there a measure on the earth? This is also the kind of question that Harry's uh, poses to Kuzanis and to his contemporaries, particularly uh, Alberti. In other words, how do we measure the very progress of our lives if there is no fixed, non-perspectival, natural locomotion? Does it suffice to make the rational measuring agent the sole artifice of the limitless space that lies before us? So one of the chapters of Infinity and Perspective is dedicated to the way in which Renaissance thinkers, particularly Leon Battista Alberti, here there's an image from his on painting, uh, a manuscript that Cusanus seems to have owned, and Cusanus uh, recover the dictum of Protagoras, man is the measure. Harry's reminds us of Alberti's uh, uh, defense of Protagoras. And he says in On Painting 55, Alberti says, since man is the thing best known to man, perhaps Protagoras, by stating that man is the mode and measure of all things, meant that all the accidents of things are known through comparison to the accidents of man. Now, what's critical here is that both Plato and Aristotle rebuked Protagoras for this dictum. Uh, so how did this dictum then find new followers? in Quattrocento, Italy. Why did this reversal of fortune take place? And why did it take place in this place and at this time? Um, and there's a story I can't go into here. Maybe someone here uh, knows it better than I do, but whether uh, Nicolas Acuza actually met Alberti during his stay in Padua, there's not no documentation for it, but leading us to say uh, Harry's uh, including one of the articles that he published on this theme, uh, proffers the hypothesis they could have met. Um, but that's neither here nor there. We know that uh, the important point is that Kuzanis had access to this um, 
line of thinking and in fact reiterates it. Now it's too simple to point to an accommodation by the humanists to new modes of engineering, although this is clearly a factor and it's something that Il Kim highlighted in his wonderful lecture on Alberti. Both Alberti and Kuzanis, and this is the line that I think um, uh, Harry's wants us to consider, both Alberti and Kuzanis were dedicated to the principle of visible form, what Alberti terms la più grassa Minerva, the goddess Minerva uh, understood as being the fatter one. So basically that's a rewriting of something that had been said somewhat dismissively, I think by Cicero, to mean that there has to be consideration of something beyond mathematical measure or form in its incarnation in the material and visible world. So both Cusanus uh, and even more adamantly Alberti are defenders of La Piu Grassa Minerva or defenders of the aesthetics of the Protagorean principle, not just its mechanics. So Plato, uh, Harry's continues, had criticized Protagoras for confusing perceiving with knowing. Cusanus and Alberti do not assume that what you see with your material eyes is the real as such. Only God has such certainty of knowledge. But they were both dedicated to the revindication of perception as a way of knowing, a point that Aristotle himself had affirmed against Platonic idealism. Man is, according to Cusanus, and this is a point that, again, that Harry's underscores in Affinity and Perspective, a second God. This is a somewhat ambiguous term, maybe more so for Cusanus than even for Alberti. But that gets us into the realm that we now have to consider. What aspect of the all-knowing divine creativity is then imparted to the human knower through this new emphasis on perspective? So I turn now after that brief uh, consideration of infinity and perspective to uh, the interpretation of Quattrocento by Louis Dupre. Dupre's definitive treatment of the origins of modern culture spanned three books and uh, 20 years. Passage to Modernity, first edition, 1993, Enlightenment and the Intellectual Origins of Modern Culture, 2005, and The Quest of the Absolute. That was not with uh, Yale Press, but with Notre Dame Press in 2013. The treatment of Italian humanism occupies a central place in the first volume and was also treated in more succinct form in the Erasmus lectures that he delivered in the academic year 2005-2006 at Notre Dame. And I'll give a little bit more emphasis on the, the second version, although there's not much difference between them. Um, in, the, in the Erasmus lectures, however, he begins to explain for the first time why the framing of the problem of modernity still matters in an age that defines itself as postmodern. Um, and we can get into that. It's not an important point for my lecture tonight about his kind of low estimation of the term postmodern. But the important point I want to make before turning to what he has to say about humanism itself, well, it's twofold. First, that there's these three stages, um, Renaissance humanism, um, the Enlightenment um, of the 18th century, and then 19th century Romanticism. And you could, to borrow a phrase from Taylor, even see them as kind of ratchets. Um, that the advances made towards a modern culture uh, that take place in Renaissance humanism are the condition for the possibility of enlightenment and enlightenment for the condition, condition for the possibility of romanticism. But it's not, a, it's not a question of linear progress that he wants to highlight. 
it's more a question of how I want to say that some uh, elements of the original problem as inherited in Renaissance humanism, particularly Italian humanism, um, then become reiterated or reframed or reconfigured in the later developments. And in fact, um, that's not the point, main point I'm going to develop this evening, but you can see a great deal of continuity in the way he approaches the problem. The others, the second point I want to make is that the word passage in the title of 1993 is critical. And in the bibliography, I'll provide you uh, a citation of the, the published dissertation of Elizabeth Bryant, who goes even, who considers not the word passage, but the word epoch and epical transition with the same kind of perspective as, as Harry's and Dupre, she being having written a dissertation under Harry's. But passage is critical to the entire project of genealogy as envisaged by Dupre. It portrays the way in which Dupre is, is and is not a genealogist of the post, well, let's just say of the postmodern ilk. Above all, Dupre wishes to highlight, and here he borrows a phrase from Charles Trinkhaus, the humanist counter-nominalism, a humanism that emerged in Southern Europe and that thinks about rhetoric as the horizon of the infinite. Dupre also refers to this development as a road not taken by the end of the Quattrocento, when the Western European self-understanding was on the brink of being overtaken by Reformation anti-humanism, although Torrance Kirby gave a, a nice counter argument to that um, just recently in the series, and Cartesian rationalism. His main point is that, um, as you see in the subtitle for the first book, is that we need to explore the hermeneutics uh, of the real and the hermeneutics of human fabrication, the hermeneutics of nature and culture, not just in the past, it's modernity through the 15th and early 16th century, but at every stage of the game. Now, I can only make some brief points here, but I want to try to summarize um, the main uh, uh, passage that he highlights and the role of Renaissance humanism in it. I think what Dupre wants to say about uh, Plato and his followers is that you have not so much the defense in Plato of uh, a substantial form that stands over and above and beyond the finite visible realm, but as we began to see already in the interpretation of Harry's, um, you, you have, uh, as the word, the Greek word eidos itself suggests, you have a look, you have a vision. Um, not quite the postmodern perspective that we talked about at the outside, but certainly uh, a way into through visibility and through appearance. Um, more than a little bit of Husserlian phenomenology is making its way into his interpretation of Plato, and that would be very much par for the course for Louis Dupre in general. So what he looks at in his evaluation of the Platonic tradition, which then becomes to a fore, even in his reading of Cruzanus, is, is the dissolution of this all-embracing form, which uh, gives us a look of, of the whole, literally, as was said in, in my presentation, uh, the whole that is greater than those parts and allows us some window into reality. And as I said earlier, in the refutation of the Bacardian uh, absolute novelty of Italian humanism, um, he, with Chenu and, and many others, uh, thoroughly dismisses the idea that this is what happens then in the 14th, 15th century in the trajectory from Dante and Petrarch through Cruzana Salverti, Ficino, et cetera, is new by looking at the 
turn to rhetoric and language and symbolism already as well developed in earlier times, particularly in 12th century uh, theology. Now on the question of Thomism, that should be a lecture unto itself. Um, in the late 70s, there was a famous debate uh, at the Catholic Theological Society of America between David Burrell and Louis Dupre. And I would definitely urge you to go back to the proceedings and look at that, uh, where Burrell defended Thomas and, uh, and Dupre raised a lot of questions. Um, in the more mature writings, including one that I'll, I'll cite from in just a second, um, Dupre is much more circumspect in terms of making any accusations about how modern notions of efficient causality were already present in, in Thomas and seems to lay that charge more on the side of later Neotomus who separate nature from grace. That becomes his, the key leitmotif and also the key way of then the reconsideration of Renaissance humanism. But um, what he says in a, in a writing that's gonna come out with Notre Dame Press on this issue um, shortly is that is the following. Most scholastic commentaries, whatever their internal differences, end up with a dualism of two states and two natures. Aquinas's position is ambiguous. The idea of a natural desire has mostly disappeared from modern philosophy. So the, the positive element of St. Thomas that is consistently defended from beginning to end by Louis Dupre is the uh, desiderium naturale advenendum dei, the natural desire to see God according to his essence. But much hinges on the way that you interpret that and the way that you interpret it, not for any kind of monism or not for any kind of uh, absorption of the finite into the infinite, keeping the dialectic between finite and infinite always in view, but trying to see, as he says here in this piece, the desire for seeing God then that in line with an Aristotelian tradition could be called natural only to the extent that it seeks its fulfillment in general, not in a theologically specific way. Dupre writes, the transcendent goal inherent in all spiritual activity anticipates that this goal is attainable, even though its full attainment may exceed the capacities of the human nature. So two points here about Dupre's defense of natural desire in St. Thomas. One is that he finds an even more felicitous phrase in Idiota de Sapiense, the Sapiensiae, uh, the 1450 uh, dialogue of Nicholas of Cusa, in which um, Cusanus posits that in the beginning of all thinking, there's a pre-gustatio, a pre-taste of God. And he fi finds that, that, that that terminology and those the dialectics of pre-gustatio in the mid 15th century uh, Cousin formulation um, exactly hits the right balance between um, uh, uh, marking a distinction between uh, the natural and the supernatural and seeing the, the, the elan vital, the, the dynamism of the human spirit uh, that moves us towards the inf infinite. And so let me just end with that. There's so much more that could be said about uh, the role that Thomism could and might not play in terms of the restoration of the problems that were then later addressed by Renaissance humanism. The main culprit is what he calls nominalism. And I don't have time to go into his, the specifics of uh, what he calls the assault that came from the nominalists. Um, he does 
uh, acknowledged that with Occam and the turn to language, um, he never uh, defends what you call the, the theory of terms in Occam, but turn to language, you have an insight that is then later refined by Renaissance humanists. Um, uh, there's a term also from Idiota de Sapientia, um, Theologia Sermocinalis, which is hard to translate, a, a word-related theology, for lack of a better term, um, that uh, testifies to this. But what I want to emphasize here is that nominalism is something much bigger than Occam. And so modern empiricism, Locke, the dissolution of form that is only really brought back into play with uh, romanticism in the 19th century um, is totally decimated by an empiricist mentality that finds its origins, origins in the via moderna of nominalism. So I turn now to something positive and I turn now to something positive that seeks to bring back the right balance between the finite and the infinite, right balance between nature and grace. Oh, in the last, I, I skipped over a point and I'll just mention it and we can bring it up uh, later in discussion is what was the role of Henri de Lubac in all this? Since he had dealt more directly with some of the medieval traditions on this question. And the answer is that uh, Dupre was very, very cognizant and indebted to de Lubac's breakthrough there, but that we'll leave that for, for the discussion. Okay, so uh, Davis Yoni Day of 1453, here you have uh, the manuscript from uh, Kuzanis's own uh, uh, collection in the so-called Hospital uh, in Kuz, um, becomes a kind of uh, centrifugal point for Dupre for beginning to see how there was a path not taken in Renaissance humanism. Um, now, let me make a general point and then try to get us situated into the text of On the Vision of God. Uh, Dupre, in general, in the passage, makes a point, and I think it's a very powerful point, is that it's not, if we wanted to learn something from pre-modernity, in particular from Renaissance humanism, it's not, we have to make a distinction between form and content. Um, and what he sees as valuable in a Cusanus or in a Ficino or even in some of the early modern spiritual writers who he treats in that, um, in that book, above all, Ignatius of Loyola, is the pre-modern spiritual content. Um, and he's very clear, in this case, he's diametrically opposed to Burkhardt. He's very clear on the medieval spirituality as being the guiding force that allows us to see some new insights and learn more about our modernity uh, in these authors. And so I want, here's a picture of the Benedictine Abbey of Tegernsee. And I wanna remind us that um, Nicholas of Cusa was accused of, of an overly intellectualist approach to uh, the mystical life in his own lifetime by uh, Vincent of Augsbach, a Carthusian and the abbot of this particular monastery in uh, correspondence um, uh, asked Kuzanis to reply. And that was one of the uh, starting points for the writing of On the Vision of God. So there's, there's a kind of Benedictine or monastic uh, spiritual content that is coupled with a, a form, a new modern perspectival way of looking at God in the world in this text 
that makes it inviting and important for our analysis. Now, Dupre, uh, and there's another debate that some people in our group might want to go into of the more how the new French phenomenology has treated this text. And I'll just mention that and leave that to the side. Um, and I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of that debate. But this text has found a revival in the last um, five or seven years, uh, precisely because of the interest taken in it by um, Jean-Luc Marion, Emmanuel Falk, and people close to them, including myself. But let me just uh, remind you of the three visual aids that Kuzanis uses in the text um, to speak about how um, about visio dei. So visio dei, both a subjective and objective genitive, um, hearkening back to a principle that Dupre himself um, uh, posits as coming from Plotinus, although a more approximate source that I've argued elsewhere is important is Eckhart's the eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. So how is there a union of perspectives, God's perspective and ours, ours in the eye? So these are three of the more um, celebrated images in the text itself that allow us to think about that. One was an actual self-portrait of Roger van der Weyden um, that you see in the first image. Um, this is a recreated image of the, of the self-portrait that Kuzanis himself would have known now in a tapestry in which as you follow the eye, it follows you. So that's the image of the omnivoyant eye. Then um, a 15th century artistic depiction of the veil of Veronica contemplating the face of God is also contemplating the face of Christ. Um, don't have much time to go into the soteriology of Kuzanis, but it's a key uh, theme. Um, and the, the relationship between the philosophy perspective and the Christocentric theology, of course, then comes to the center of Dupre's reading of David Day. And then finally, the complex image that is discussed in the preface, this is just a, a modern day evocation of monks processing with an image. Um, but, and this particularly in Falk's reading uh, is highlighted and celebrated. Monks are walking back and forth with one of these omnivoyant icons and are able to look at and be looked upon by the omnivoyant uh, eye of God as they process past one another in a liturgical procession. And in some of the readings to enhance the more communal view, uh, there is allusion to a brief mention in the text of the exchanging of glances and even of knowledge through this processing icon and this moving vision of God. So the dynamics of the text focus on the relationship between God's eye with which he sees us and our eye with which we see God. So with that kind of basic background in mind, let me now walk through in the spirit of Dupre. I'm not going to stick literally to everything he said, although I have some text that I could share with you. Um, in the spirit of Dupre, let me go through um, how there is a new understanding of the relationship of nature and grace with a modern form, but medieval spiritual content that is presented for view in this um, image-laden text. So I won't read all of these um, passages because they're all so deep, but let me at least give you a taste of some of the 
images and ideas that we find in on the vision of God. So here in chapter six, Kuzana says, this truth is signified by this contracted shadow-like image in this way then, O Lord. And remember, this is in the spirit of Anselm's Proslogion, a meditative text. It was given to the monks at Tegenze so they could not just read it and think about it, but they could pray over it. This truth is signified by this contracted shadow-like image. In this way then, O Lord, I apprehend that your face precedes every form of a face and is the exemplar and truth of all faces and that all faces are images of your face which cannot be contracted and cannot be participated in. So for Dupre, this metaphysics of image and exemplar, um, how the infinite face of God precedes every formable face and is the exemplar and truth of all faces um, uh, vindicates the Neoplatonic. And in fact, he will even say, uh, going back to Plotinus's noose in which the, the second hypothesis in the triad in which intelligence and intelligibility coincide and now I'm quoting from Dupre, that makes the soul aspire at a state in which all seeing consists in being seen. So the integration of this possibly Plotinian, certainly Neoplatonic understanding of the dynamics of vision, infinite and finite, then becomes situated in a thoroughly Christological uh, spiritual life. Um, here, the importance of symbol. In all the faces, the face of faces is seen in a veiled and symbolic manner. So that there's already um, what Kuzana sometimes called enigmatica sciencia, symbolic, enigmatic knowledge. This goes with the much larger stream of, of, of rhetorical and language-laden and symbol-laden theology we already talked about our early versions in the 12th century that the Quattrocento humanists were trying to revive. This is one of the most cited texts in De Visione Dei because it allows us to see how the, the dynamics of image exemplar, God's absolute face, and our seeing ourselves in that absolute face and our being seen by God, the creator of our own vision, in that face is not just a static reality, but is a living dynamic reality. Let me read this whole quote um, so that we can spend a little of time. Uh, and of course, that last line there is th the key one about where freedom comes into play in the Kuzan vi vi vision of God and humanity. Oh God, you have led me to the place where I see your absolute face to be one, the natural face of every nature. Two, the face which is the absolute being of all being. And three, the art and knowledge of every knowable. So whoever merits to see your face sees all things plainly and nothing remains hidden from him. He who has you, O Lord, knows and has all things. I, who am not worthy to appear in your presence, how will my prayer reach you who are altogether unapproachable? How will I entreat you? For what is more absurd than to ask that you, who are all in all, give yourself to me? How will you give yourself to me unless you likewise give to me the sky and the earth and everything in them? Indeed, how will you give yourself to me unless you also give me 
to myself. And while I am quietly reflecting in this manner, you, O Lord, answer me in my heart with the words, um, sic tu tuus et ego sum. Be you your own and I will be yours. So the, this is a very important passage and allows us to see the point of intersection between the vision and interpretations of Harry's and Dupre. Harry's uh, not uh, explicitly uh, affirming the religious side of humanism, although acknowledging its historical importance and Dupre explicitly affirming it, but bo both see a new movement towards human freedom and human affirmation understood against the horizon and infinite and particularly understood against the dynamism of the Kuzan understanding of human creativity, which is a creativity that comes from and is wholly given by God. Be your own and I will be yours is the locution that the Lord gives to the monk, to the aspirant, to um, the soul who's seeking to know God and be loved by God. But you might say that that's, that's kind of just a mystic's mysticism of fusion, but in fact it's not, because with the wall of paradise, um, a very interesting metaphor right in chapter 13 in the middle of David's unit day, um, he returns to the theme of learned ignorance and how neither ratio, discursive reasoning, nor intellectus, which is the mind's eye, can ever on its own transcend except through a leap that is initiated by God. Uh, I didn't use the Kierkegaardian phrase, but there's something there of that. Um, moreover, I do not know how to name you because I do not know who you are. And if someone tells me that you are named by this or that name, then by virtue of the fact that he names, I know that this is not your name. For the limit of every mode of signification that belongs to names is the wall beyond which I see you. And if anyone expresses any concept whereby you can be conceived, I know that this concept is not a concept of you. For every concept reaches limit at the wall of paradise. So it's not, uh, even though the last passage could be understood as a kind of one with mysticism of interior union, it's actually not working in that way for Kuzanis. It's a mysticism to move beyond the self-propelled dynamics of the human soul to be received by God. And then just a little bit about the Christology, which is a very prominent part in the latter chapters of the treatise. I see you, O good Jesus, on the inner side of the wall of humanity. So the very important, often overlooked because he's so neoplatonic, the very important role of the human nature of Christ in Cusanus's Christology and all the aspects uh, like Ludolf of Saxony's dynamics, all the aspects of imaging the crucified Christ. You saw that in the veil of Veronica image I gave you at the beginning. Um, uh, do come into play here because uh, the two natures of Christ in their hypostatic union uh, straddle the wall of paradise. Now, I wanted to return to Harry's for a minute, and we can kind of slowly come to an end, uh, certainly an end of the consideration of David's journey day. <coughs> for Harry's, uh, there was an aesthetic moment in his uh, lifting up of the vision of Alberti on the importance of human perspective. And I think that uh, beauty for Harry's uh, signifies this kind of interaction between the finite and the infinite. 
in Dupre's reading, uh, he's much more open to seeing the face of Christ, the humanity of Christ, even in its suffering uh, for the sake of the redemption of all of humanity. Um, in Dupre's reading, it's much more plainly that of medieval Christianity. But there's this curious image in David's Union Day, one that's repeated in sermons and used by Cousinus a lot, <clears throat> that makes us think that he was trying to be um, uh, a follower of Alberti in a theological mode. And I wanna, I wanna end my reading of David's Union Day with the image of God the painter, because it brings together rather perfectly, I think, the, the mutuality and the perspectives of Harry's and uh, Dupre. You created as if you were a painter who mixes different colors in order at length to be able to paint himself to the end that he may have an image of himself wherein he himself may take delight and his artistry may find rest. Although the divine painter is one and is not multipliable, he can nevertheless be multiplied in the way in which this is possible. In other words, in a very close likeness. <clears throat> However, he makes many figures because the likeness of his infinite power cannot be unfolded in the most perfect way, only in many figures. And all intellectual spirits are useful to each intellectual spirit. Now, unless they were countless, you, O infinite God, could not be known in the best way possible. For each intellectual spirit sees in you, my God, something without which the others, unless it were revealed to them, could not in the best possible manner attain unto you, their God. Full of love, the spirits reveal to one another their respective secrets. And as a result, their knowledge of the one who is loved and their desire for him is increased and the sweetness of their joy is aflame. So it begins as a merely aesthetic image and is a valoration of this emphasis on <coughs> color and visibility and the movement in a mathematical and perspectival way into uh, a fuller dimension, la più grassa minerva, is actually for Cusanus a goad to thinking about a union beyond intellectual union, beyond a kind of crossing of the finite with the infinite in terms of a mathematical knowledge to being loved by God. Now I have two more slides and then I can wrap things up. Uh, and these slides are trying to uh, just open up some new kinds of questions. Um, questions that I think were only partly uh, answered by the perspectives of uh, Dupre and Harry's and questions that are not only more relevant and actual today, but um, are very important for us to ask. Now, many people, you can look at the, in the older works, um, the early work of Carl Otto Appel, uh, Giovanni Santinello, great Cusana scholar, looked at the reading of Renaissance humanism by Vico, Giampattista Vico, 1688 to 1744. Um, today, you could look at the school around Giuseppe Mazzotta, a contemporary at Yale of Dupre and Harry's, um, and, and some of his followers, um, his cosmopoiesis is not specifically about Vico, but is in the spirit of Vico. Um, and of course, then there's the, the reading of Vico by John Milbank, which is probably the most theologically astute one. Um, Vico, uh, the glory of Vico was that he understood as an alternative to Cartesian rationalism, this path not taken by Renaissance humanism. And uh, in his many writings, starting with his uh, De Antiquissima, 
Italorum Sapientia on the most ancient wisdom of the Italians um, glorified this poetic theology in the way that both Harry's and Dupre did, and I would as well. But Vico in the end, um, and this is the aspect of Vico that moves us more towards modern historicism, not, not only just Nietzsche, but as Denotto has shown in his readings about Vico and modern Italian communism, uh, really a, a dialectical materialism that is embodied by the, the term verum es ipsum factum. So the truth about the world is that which is being made. Um, and you can see in this image from the frontispiece of the 1730 and 1742 editions of Vico's New Science, that connection between the optics of Isaac Newton and Vico's recovery of the past. So the precursor to modern science, even though it's not Cartesian rationalism, then becomes the central leitmotif in the Vician readings of Italian humanism, which are very rich and very important. And the only question I want to raise, one that um, a student of Mazzotta's name Lolini has looked at in part, but has never really looked at, is what is the difference between verimus ipsum factum and verimus ipsum creatum? The latter was not directly addressed by Vico, but making and being created. Now that is a Cousin dialectic that can be addressed on those terms. And that, and that dialectic is what seems to drop out in Vico. So that's, that's just a, a kind of shot across the, the bow against the Vician interpretation of Renaissance humanism, but acknowledging its importance and, uh, and the need to continue to explore it. Now, this is the most speculative uh, slide. Um, and I'll just say a word about this um, so we can open up to discussion right away. But I think um, what, what is never stated in Harry's or Dupre, but that I would want to bring up is the connection between discovery of the new world and this perspectivalism. Now, Mignolo, my colleague here at Duke has done amazing work, uh, not just in this early work, Darker Side of the Renaissance. And what I think is, um, what I wanna just highlight from the decolonial reading of the Renaissance by uh, Mignolo is the epistemological focus that he and his followers have given to the study of late 15th century. And they, of course, have focused on Sepulveda, the interlocutor Bartolome de las Casas, who um, uh, defended an Aristotelian and definitely neo-colonial reading of uh, human nature against the Indians and then how Bartolome breaks through and offers us a new path. We could do a whole lecture here on Bartolome. But what I wanted, and, and he also focused on Nebriha and the Erasmian, I'm using neo-Erasmian as a kind of pejorative term here, nothing against Erasmus, and the neo-Erasmian uh, reading that some Spanish humanists used uh, that then filtered their way into the understanding of the first peoples in the new world. But what doesn't seem to get any attention and that I wanna just, and I wanna end with this as an opening uh, to a uh, possible discussion in the future would, was the role of uh, the man who gave us the name America, Vespucci. Because, and, and, and Vespucci uh, coming out of late 15th century uh, Florence uh, is an interesting character. Um, and I'll just say this, um, well, Bartolome Las Casas called him a liar <laughs> for taking credit for something that, that should have gone to Columbus. And many others, uh, I mean, the question about his third and fourth voyage, whether they really happened or whether he fabricated them, there's many, many disputed facts. Um, and you can look at the, this wonderful book by Felipe Fernandez Armesto um, uh, on Vespucci, if you want to get some more details. But the thing that I just want to highlight is that there is a connection between Renaissance humanism 
and discovery of the New World through Vespucci. Um, his, his uncle was a Dominican friar in the monastery of San Marco and uh, uh, Giorgio Antonio and taught him uh, cartography, taught him the Florentine, to read the Florentine astronomer, Paolo Dal Pozzi Toscanelli. And the, the kind of perspectival knowing that we've been talking about and highlighting here um, definitely comes into play in Vespucci, who certainly had the first two voyages. And out of that, uh, got the claim. We see this encounter of Vespucci with the Indians, I think in Brazil, um, got, got, gave his name to the, the continents that we call the Americas. So I offer that as a hypothesis as something that might be explored. Uh, maybe he was a liar and maybe the studies of Sepulveda and the humanists need to be explored with the same vigor. But I think there is a connection there, um, both important for continuing the, the strand of perspectivalism that we've been looking at in the earlier Italian humanism and also for acknowledging the truth in the criticism offered by Mignolo and others. Here's a brief bibliography. Uh, of some of the works I mentioned, um, and I can stop sharing. This will be distributed later with the video. So if you don't get this right away, you'll be able to get it later. And I'm available for questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Professor, for, for tying th things together and running through uh, uh, Dante, Ficino, so many of the, the, the things we've, we've covered in this series uh, have been tied together so nicely in this narrative. For, for those of us who are, are, are less, uh, uh, less specialized in this area, could you, could you sort of recap the argument of, of uh, the presentation on, on why uh, we should be trying to recover excuse me, perspectival approach to truth, right? What are the stakes at, uh, at, at this recovery and what is lost if we, if we, if we neglect it? Oh, well, that's, that's an easy question to answer, because I think the stakes, the hard question to answer is what is meant by perspective in these authors, right. and how does philosophy and theology come together in a new and original way, and what was lost in that creative synthesis. The easy question to answer is that if you view the world through one perspective, you can't learn anything from other people. Right. You can't learn anything from other cultures. You say they're bad people crossing the borders and they need to be sent back. And I think human life ultimately deteriorates because no one lives in a monoculture anymore. Sure. I mean, I can go on about this, but I think the, the relevance of thinking about perspective in a serious way is uh, personal, social and political in a in a way that it is, is palpably important to daily life in our world. I see. And, and, and the narrative that we've seen is the breakdown of that perspective, perspective view into, into another. And now we're trying to recover something. Uh, this. Um, I, we, go ahead. Yeah. No, please. Well, I think Dupre in particular was interested in the God question and, and how the question of God and the question of perspective, particularly with the turn to language, there's a, a figure named Ernesto Grassi that I didn't mention that in particular was post-Heideggerian, a philosopher of language that inspired Dupre um, and went on about this connection between Renaissance humanism and the post-Heideggerian discussion of language and rhetoric. Um, and Harry's was more interested in the perspectival question and responding to Nietzsche. 
but they both in a think complementary way um, tried to show that there was something there that is not obvious or self-evident that would provoke us to think in a new way about perspective. And what I tried to do at the end was to show that even though they didn't deal with all the social and political problems we have today, like the Neovikian view, which sometimes becomes very political, or the, the decolonial view, which is obviously political, um, that there's, there's a, a conversation to be had about Italian humanism in their view and, um, and its legacy. Thank you. And we've had several comments, uh, questions about, about Cusa and about his, his idea of perception. Uh, Sean asks, uh, you mentioned that we find in Cusanus a renewed appreciation for the role played by perception in calling attention to the human being as Mago Dei. Does this mean that Cusa is appreciating material perception in a bold new way? Or is he still using material perception, that is, for example, looking at the Veronica icon of Christ, as an analogy for higher levels of perception? Thank you, Sean, for that important question. Uh, I hope you're not disappointed if I say both, <laughs> um, because it's certainly both. Um, on the first point, I would point to uh, the sermon. I'm sure Sean knows it, Tota Poker S, Sermon 243 of 1456, just written just three years. It's sometimes even referred to as Sermon Sermo de Pulchritudine, um, which includes a lot of Albertist, but not Alberti, but Albert the Great Albertus, um, uh, meditations on beauty or pulchritude um, in an image exemplar fashion. Uh, but I think Harry's, uh, this is something I learned from Harry's and that I want to also defend. Harry's sees a direct line of continuity between La Piu Grasa Minerva and Cusanus. And Cusanus's speculation on color has not received as much attention. Um, you see a little bit in the carbuncle. Uh, if you know the carbuncle, carbuncle is like a gem, like a ruby that he uses an image for divine light infusing the world in a, in a sense of creating a symbol of God in all the world. Um, in the 1460, Delinon Aliud, um, you see some uh, colored images and, and, and reflections on the colorfulness of images in Cusanus, but not nearly enough attention has been paid to it. Um, so both, the, both of those strands are there, what you might call the Aristotelian and the Platonic, uh, and they're mixed together in a new way. Hmm. But it's a, it's a good and important question. Hmm. Right on this topic, uh, Noah asked a question also on, on Cusanus. Uh, can you talk about why Cusanus's understanding of perspective and his, and his discussion of omnivoyance is or is not analogical? Well, uh, thank you again for the question, Noah. Uh, I guess it all depends on what you mean by analogia. Um, <clears throat> I certainly think that Johannes Hof uh, might go too far in his book about the analogical turn. Um, but on the specific question you asked about whether perspective is uh, analogical, um, it's if you, if you in a post-Hegelian manner want to uh, distinguish sharply between a dialectic that sees uh, an impossible breaching of the gap between the finite and the infinite 
uh, except through a new new metaphysics of subjectivity, as in phenomenology of spirit, on the one hand, versus a Thomistic or neo-Thomistic analogia entis, then I guess you could say that uh, Davis Day and the other texts in Cusanus are suffused with analogical thinking. I mean, they're all oriented towards union. And even Harry's uh, kind of the non-believer in this um, dialogue um, emphasizes that the Imago Dei perspectivalism in Cusanus is there to show us a, a, a new path to something that Plato already hints at in the Republic of the mind as a seeker of unity. Um, and that could be understood as analogical. I mean, one of the great defenders of the analogical reading Kuzanis is uh, von Balthasar, who um, wrote extensively about this and even saw the full form, Vollgestalt was the term he used, of analogical thinking in the Kuzan dialectics of transcendence and immanence. But then you're presented with the wall of paradise and the intellect doesn't get over the wall of paradise except through grace. That's not modern post-Kierkegaardian fideism, but it's something that the analogical thinkers of the Middle Ages did not contemplate in those terms. And so um, there's a big debate in Cusana scholarship. Um, the Latin American readers coming out of Buenos Aires and Chile are very anti-analogical and some of the English speaking readers are very, going back to Hopkins, are very pro-analogical. Um, the truth of the matter is that Cusanus seldom uses the word analogia and certainly didn't write a treatise on the analogia entis. So I assume that the debate will go on. Yeah. Thank you. And we have, we have two questions about influence uh, on, or, or perhaps intellectual pre predecessors of, of Cusanus. Uh, first one is from Michael. Was Cusanus influenced by Bonaventure's eternal art as a fixed yet condescending perspective apart from the coincidence of opposites? Um, yes, I wrote a piece on that, in, uh, but it's in Spanish. Hmm. I can send it to you if you email me and if you read Spanish. What's uh, the title of the piece? Excuse me? What's the title of, of I, it? I frankly don't remember. I wrote it a long time ago but it was on the image exemplar relationship in Cusanus. I mean, already von Steinbergen in a very early uh, biography from, I don't know, 1920s, 1930s, had said that Cusanus read in his youth, like 17 or 18, before he even goes to um, Southern Germany for his first year of his university studies, um, read Itinerium Mentis and Deum. Right. Um, and it's clear that the Bonaventurian Ars Dei um, is, but, it, but it's also coupled with Albert the Great's aesthetics, um, which is a little bit different. Um, but the, like for example, uh, there's a hint of what we're calling kind of creativity in Italian humanism already in the reading of the De Musica of St. Augustine by uh, St. Bonaventure. Hmm. Because uh, when, and I wrote another piece about that, but when Bonaventure reads the chapter six of the De Musica, he adds artistic numbers to the other kinds of numbers. That's a very complicated story about poetic meter and the De Musica, but he adds artistic numbers 
And Bonaventure, of course, is in Paris as uh, cathedrals are being built. Julian of Spires inventing polyphony in the Couvent des Cordeliers in Paris. Bonaventure is surrounded by art and concrete beauty. And so he had that insight. Um, Cousinus probably went to Paris and saw those two centuries later. Um, but there's definitely a Bonaventurian spirit. So others have written about that. Uh, and I've tried to affirm that as well. You mentioned uh, the relationship of, of uh, Eckhart uh, briefly. We have a question from Robert on the relationship of, of Eckhart to Cousinus. Robert writes, if Cousinus learned from Eckhart, do you think that Eckhart anticipates Cousinus's perspectivalism? Oh, yes. And in fact, my contribution to the debate uh, between uh, Marion and Falk uh, makes a lot of that point. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's very well documented that Cousinus didn't have all the writings of Eckhart. Well, this is a complicated story, but let me try to make it simple. Um, in as much as anything regarding the legacy of Eckhart can be made simple. Cousinus uh, had access to Latin sermons of Eckhart, Don, starting with Don Duclos, many other people have written about, uh, and then there's even a new German dissertation that goes through all of the annotations uh, in, um, of Ec by Cousinus in Eckhart manuscripts and studies them very carefully. So we, we, there's no doubt that Cousinus knew Eckhart. What happens is that after the publication of Unlearned Ignorance, uh, John Venk uh, condemns Cousinus as an Eckhartian. And so the thesis I've tried to develop is in the later writing, the post, and that's called the, and then Cousinus writes, we know this because Cousinus writes an apology for learned ignorance, uh, defending himself against the charge that he's Eckhartian and trying to say that, that he didn't really defend the kind of Eckhartianism that was attributed to him, the heretical Eckhartianism. So then you have to look at the, the, the trial of Eckhart and what Cousinus knew about that. Um, and, and I think Cousinus, being a lawyer by training, not a philosopher by training, uh, makes that case. But not surprisingly, references to Eckhart, explicit reference to Eckhart, drop out after that point in his writings. Uh, and it becomes more of a subterranean force. Um, but and to complicate matters more, I mean, he also knew Dietrich of Freiburg. He knew the whole Rhineland school of mysticism. So it's not just Eckhart, but it's the whole Rhineland school of, of, of thinking about the internal dynamics of the soul and its union with God that are influencing him. Thank you. And at the beginning of your, your presentation, you talked about the, both the direct influence, but also the subterranean influence that, that Renaissance humanism might be having for us today. We have some questions on the ethical implications of this kind of uh, Kuzana style perspectivalism. William asks, could you expand on what you see as the role of practice in view of this perspectivalism? And do you see Spinoza as a figure that is important to grapple with in coming to terms with these problems of modernity? Also, could we find in practice or even ethics a new sense of realism where we view nature as something that conditions us and thereby contains a value independent of human valuation. Quite a lot there. I like the question, hmm. a lot to think about. Hmm. Um, ethics of Renaissance humanism was already well, uh, I mean, put on the table with the early studies of Valla by Nancy Stroiver, 
Um, and then you have the whole question about Vala's ethics. Vala and Kuzanis knew each other, um, and the ethics of Kuzanis are different from that of Vala, but I mean, the question of ethics was very much in the air, uh, and that's something that does need to be thematized more broadly by the, the Kuzanis crowd. I would uh, affirm what was said about Spinoza. I mean, Spinoza gets a bad rap in all this, um, but even Hopkins, who has a very conservative view of Kuzanis in some ways, always said that the, the God-infused thought of Spinoza was a kind of successor to Kuzanis's understanding of the infinite. Um, and there's some parallels there. Um, and then thirdly, you asked about a new realism. Yeah, I guess that's, that's I guess, the line that I want to take. Um, I, th I want to, at some point, bring together what I said here about uh, Cusa and Alberti seen through the lens of these two teachers of mine uh, with all the research being done on uh, late medieval uh, studies of the common good, going back to the, the person who, who wrote the first treatise De Bono Comuni, Remigio de Girolamo. Um, I think that that uh, is a connection that can be explored and would have to be also brought together with the, uh, the later uh, reflections that I offered vis-a-vis Pucci -vis and decolonial criticism. So I don't think I've given you a concrete answer. I've laid out more a series of academic inquiries. Um, and so you can fault me for that. But I, I do find these questions fascinating. And I thank you for them. Well, I think, I think we're running up against our time. Uh, Professor, thank you. This has been a very rich uh, analysis of a, a lot of the presentations, a lot of the content we've already seen in previous presentations now brought together in, in, a, in a nice, very, very, uh, very dense and robust package for us. Thank so you, thank you so much for, for this. It's been a great pleasure. Indeed, thank you all for, for coming. This has been a tremendous series. Uh, we thank the American Kuzana Society for, uh, for all the work and all, uh, in this collaboration. We are very grateful to be uh, hosting such prominent scholars who uh, are giving their time and their erudition uh, for this series. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about our upcoming series or any other projects that we have coming up, you can see them on our website. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight and uh, we'll, we'll sign off uh, the series uh, now. So thank you all. <laughs>